Welcome to Season 6 of American Political History, The Institution of Slavery, Loopholes. As Rome's expansion stopped, and it went into a slow territorial decline, with this change from continual conquest, the primary source of new slaves was cut off. Most of the slaves now became raised and bred like cattle within the plantations they served. As slave labor became more expensive to maintain, plantations started to introduce tenant-peasant labor to their plantations. This new type of tenant farming was more productive per person for the plantation owners, and they were not responsible for the health or well-being of the tenants living on their farms. In the 3rd century, Roman plantations were a mix of both slave and tenant labor. By the 4th century, tenant labor was the norm. As tenant labor became predominant, the emperor decreed that the tenant families owed the landowners their production first before their own, and they were obligated to produce goods for the plantation owners or face legal retribution. This is what is known as a serf labor system. You are born a serf to someone else's land. Your life is legally required to cultivate that land. There is no other place in society for you except as a serf to that land. The serf is technically free, but lives a short life at the edge of starvation, having inherited obligations to work someone else's land for their lives. Serfdom is a closed system that almost no one escapes. In the feudal Middle Ages, the vast majority of people alive in Europe spent their lives as serfs on someone else's land with no ability, right, or liberty to do anything else but work those lands. There was, of course, a few slaves losers of some war, who could not be sold back into the Middle East. But slavery in Western Europe became the exception. When in 1086 William the Conqueror conducted a census of his lands, he found that 9% of the people were slaves. By 1200, agricultural slavery was gone from England, fully replaced by serfdom. Any remaining slaves had been relegated to household service. Slavery in Britain started with the Celts. At the same time as the Greeks were putting together their mythological origin story of Homer, the Celts were expanding around Europe, including Ireland and England. They brought with them a tradition of slavery. The Greek geographer Strabo would note the Northern Isle, that is, exporting grain, cattle, gold, silver, iron, and slaves. He also noted that the Celtic language was spoken and their cultural traditions were followed. This note makes clear that slavery was institutionalized well before Caesar's legions landed in England in 55 BC. After Rome colonized the British Isle, their slavery system was commonplace. Slaves would be obtained on the Isle, and they were mostly worked on the Isle, but there were still plenty of slaves they exported wherever they were needed within the Roman Empire. Slavery maintained after the Romans left in the 5th century. When the Angles, the Saxons, and the Jutes all invaded, they too practiced slavery. Perhaps the only real change over time was who was enslaving who. When the Vikings arrived on the Isle, they practiced slavery. But the Viking economy had no real centralized slave system. Slaves mostly served within the halls of the elites, and the slaves were kept were almost always female, and they served the typical roles female slaves serve for their masters. Having these slaves was a status symbol for the lords of the Viking halls. The Viking slave trade generated wealth, though, and they did this by selling the slaves that they captured mostly to the Middle Eastern empires. 
while the Vikings were operating in Europe and the north and enslaving the populations. The Arabs were moving in Africa. In 642, on the Barbary coast, what we know today as Algeria, Tunisia, Morocco, and Libya, Arab armies, over 70 years, conquered the region. The choice when facing this army was enslavement or converting to Islam in advance of the conquest. The Arabs conquered the Middle East, Northern Africa, Western India, and changed the cultural paradigm in those regions. The Greeks and Romans shied away from enslaving their own nationalities. But the Arabs, who saw life as identified by being Muslim or non-Muslim, changed the rules of enslavement into one of religious order instead of national origin. The prophet Muhammad set two ways of obtaining slaves, a child born of two slaves or via conquest of non-Muslims. This limitation on conquest was new. Traditionally in the Mediterranean world, there was no limits placed on enslaving the conquered, but Islam now gave protection from enslavement by conversion. So one, knowing that the Arabs were coming, could convert to Islam to avoid enslavement. The Catholic view would soon follow the new paradigm. Soon Catholics would not enslave Catholics. In 720, the Arab army crossed the Pyrenees mountains and entered France. In 732, the Arab army was stopped. On a side note, if the battle in France had been lost, Europeans, all of Western Europe, would have likely become Muslim nations. After all, all of the nations that were conquered by the Arab Empire, the Middle East, North Africa, Persia, Afghanistan, are all predominantly Muslim nations, even to this day. But as the momentum of the conquest stalled, the Arab Empire was having a new problem. They still needed slaves to fuel their economy. Yet, via religious obligations, they could not draw them from the many Muslim territories they had or had conquered. So, the Arab slavers would launch slave raiding parties, south into the heart of Africa and north into Eastern Europe. They also started to build trade networks, such as that with the Vikings and the Italian city-states, who would sell them European slaves in exchange for finished goods. Muslim elites preferred eunuchs, that is, castrated men, as their male servants as they didn't want any functional males guarding their harems. The problem was that the Prophet Muhammad had specifically said that Muslims were not to castrate their slaves. But, if a non-Muslim had already done so, there was no specific ban on purchasing slaves that had already been castrated. Lucky for them, the Italian city-states were ready and willing to sell them just the slaves they ordered. The demand for slave labor rose once again in the Mediterranean world, and the Italian city-states got rich filling those needs. Aligned with the teachings of Cato centuries before, Venetians preferred to purchase their slaves young so they could train them up as more obedient and dependable slaves. In those slave markets of Venice, a potential buyer would choose the stock, or as we call it today, ethnicity, of the potential slaves. The slaves would be stripped, walked on stage, with a placard around their necks, listing their price and defects. They were likely to be Caucasians from Eastern Europe, Georgia and Chechnya today, black Africans likely from Eastern Africa, perhaps Ethiopia, and Tatars, an ethnic group native to the Crimea region. Tatars were prized by the Venetians, often fetching 30% higher prices than other equivalent ethnicities. It was known that Tatars are the most loyal slaves and that no Tatar has ever betrayed his master particularly skilled or beautiful slaves, 
could fetch up to an additional 60% price tag. Youthful and young was typically around 10 or 12 years old. If you're piecing this together right now, young beauty, which would serve the master in his bedroom, was ideally around 12 years old. Womanhood was accepted after a girl's first menstruation. When the agents of Muslim rulers came to buy eunuch slaves from the Italians, the specifics of the ask were new, but not the ask itself. Italian surgeons had long practiced castration of young choir boys to preserve their voices. They did this in the traditional method, practiced way back in Mesopotamia by simply crushing the testicles of the young child. It was highly painful, but the procedural death rates were quite low. These new Muslim buyers were asking for a complete removal of the testicles, scrotum, and penis. This procedure of castration was high risk. At first, only about one-third of the patients lived. This complete removal was risky and forced the surgeons to cauterize the wound. If after three days the slave had not yet peed, then there was no hope for them and they would die a few days later of a ruptured bladder. The castration houses would develop and refine their techniques in two ways. First, they sought young boys, preferably before they had reached puberty, as castration procedure had a lower mortality if the child had not yet reached puberty. Second, during the procedure, they inserted a plug immediately after the removal of the body parts, but before cauterization. The slave was not allowed to drink or pee for three days until the risk of bladder blockages had passed. After the procedure, the slave would be left with a plug, which could be removed so they could relieve themselves. The pee plug was a needed accompaniment for the rest of their lives. It was not uncommon for eunuchs to smell of pee, as their own pee would be seeping around their plug. The castration houses would flourish for two to three centuries in Europe. Thank you for listening to this episode of American Political History. If you want to support the show, please subscribe and leave a five-star rating. And share this show with someone you think would enjoy listening. Thank you again, and until next time.